Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. So, here we go. Thank you, Scott and John. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Thanks everyone for coming along and thank you, Scott, for being available for another chat. Last week with Chris Summers was fantastic, really entertaining and enlightening to hear. I'll just tell the people that I've known Scott since 2012 was my first meeting with him in the Mia rooms, spending a weekend learning Meisner from Scott. Really, really fantastic, enlightening weekend that was. So Scott, let's just jump straight in. Thanks again for joining us so early in the morning. With Meisner, would you be able to give us a little bit of background of where that came from uh, and then help us uh, learn why is it that you feel that the Meisner technique is so important for the 21st century actor in theatre and film? Great, John. Thanks for that and good to see you again. I'm so glad to see the list of people who are with us, some of whom I know and some, most of whom I don't. So welcome and, um, and thank you to uh, wonderful Alex and the Equity Foundation for sponsoring this event. The, the story of the Meisner technique is really a direct line out of Stra- uh, Stanislavski. Meisner was a part of the group theater, which was the organization in the States that only existed for 10 years, the, basically the decade of the 1930s but which had a massive impact on not only American theater, but, but ultimately world performance, because it was largely the group that, um, that introduced Stanislavski's ideas to the American public. And, and through their efforts, uh, most of the uh, members of the group ended up being teachers or directors or critics and taking the work out to other places so that you have a situation where um, uh, Lee Strasberg, who was a director with the company, goes to the actor's studio, and Stella Adler, who was the leading actress of the company, formed her own studio, and um, uh, Elia Kazan became the most important director in the Broadway scene in the 40s and in Hollywood in the 50s, and all of these people went out and began to teach their things to push this idea of what ultimately came to be called the method largely, I think, around the performance of Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire, because uh, that was directed by Kazan. Uh, Brando was trained by Stella Adler. Tennessee Williams was a group theater playwright. And, you know, on and on. All of that stuff started there. And when um, when that young man in that torn T-shirt came out onto the screen and and bellowed his wife's name, a whole generation of actors sat up and said, wait a second, that's performance of a different nature. And I'd like to have a piece of that. And that was where the method got born, about 1950, 1951, that they started using that phrase. Meisner was a founding member of the group theater, and he became um, what was referred to as the American theater's best kept secret, uh, which was the title of of a documentary made about Meisner and his work in the mid 1980s. When I studied with Meisner in the 70s, he was known, but only by the people in the room, you know, the people who were, who considered themselves theater artists, knew about Meisner and his work. And just as I started in, things started to kind of open up. And the big 
uh, early people that he worked with, people like Diane Keaton, uh, Robert Duvall, that sort of thing, those people came out and made quite an impression uh, on people just about the time I was studying with Meisner. Um, for me, the big thing that is quite different about Meisner's work and what made him distinct from Stella Adler, from Strasbourg, from other, from Kazan, was that he had this radical notion that what happened to you as an actor didn't depend on you. It depended instead on what the other person does to you, which he kind of brilliantly summarized as the pinch and the ouch. If you think about it, even though he started in the same place as, as Strasberg, who really was the big method guru, that's the opposite of what Strasberg taught. Strasberg was big on to set what he called effective memory. Uh, in other words, looking inward. And Meisner said, no, look outward. Everything you need is out there. Uh, and that's radical. So even though they both share um, a DNA, they they made very different creations. That's, I love, I love it. So do you think that, that perhaps has Meisner had more of an American feel to it? Because you teach all over the world. You're in Paris last week. I know you've taught in Turkey and um, you've certainly been here. Has it been more of something that has been an intrinsically American thing or have you found that it's accepted worldwide? I love that question, John. Um, talk in, in American sport terms, that's called a softball. <laughs> I'm going to take a swing now. <laughs> um, there you go. <laughs> uh, 20 now, 26 years ago, I moved to London and that was a, that was a move from the heart. That was, where do you really want to go? What, what do you really want to do? I was having a, a fine career in the States, but um, I followed my dream, followed my bliss and moved to London and, and started to teach here and direct here. And from London, kind of the, the international component of my work blossomed. And what I discovered in that move was that, um, Meisner's work is deeply technical and the British with, with their long tradition of uh, stiff upper lip and, and a mistrust of emotion for its own sake, which is kind of embedded in the culture. I found this work to continue the sport metaphor hit a home run because uh, what, basically what I was teaching was a technique for truthfulness. And the British love the technical aspect of it and really secretly admire the, the tradition of American uh, full-blooded acting. And so it's, it's been a happy home for me because of that marriage of technique uh, and truthfulness. And that's, that's what I've taken out to Australia. Certainly, I think you have a little bit of a shared culture with British. You're, I consider you guys halfway between the American culture and the British culture, combining for my money the best of both. And I think I think I found a similar thing in Australia when I've taught in Australia is the idea that people like the technical aspect of things and also love the the, the full-bloodedness that results from doing the technique properly. Yeah. So when after I worked with you for that weekend, you then offered that you had students that had already worked with you in London who were based in Australia and that we could do a drop-in class 
And so I went to these drop-in classes where it was all repetition. And I did find that as someone who was very new to the world, completely and utterly bizarre. On my own personal level, I was watching people being incredibly angry and being incredibly loving. And it was all, all these emotions were happening within a blink of an eye because they were doing repetition, which involved no script. They were working off each other, weren't holding on to any residue or stuff like that. So just to anybody who's out there who hasn't been involved in that sort of world, why are the repetition exercises so intrinsic to the Meissner work? Um, you're, you're tapping into a massive question there, John. So let me let me try and not run on and on too long about it. Sure. Over the years, uh, as I've been teaching the Meisner work, which now is getting on to 45 years I've been teaching this work, I've been I've discovered that there are things that I've let go that Meisner taught that I didn't find as helpful as other things. And, and I can tell you why. Um, it's about Meisner's unique selling point, the idea that, that everything I need is in the other person's or, and or the given circumstances. Meisner's definition of acting is that acting is living truthfully under a given set of circumstances, a brilliant and, and typically concise definition of acting. And so over the course of, of the time I've been teaching, I've let go of certain things that didn't support that notion as strongly. And I've, I've ended up with five exercises from beginning to the end. I teach five different exercises and people learn easily those five exercises. You're not cluttered up with a lot of information. The first exercise, which we call repetition, is an exercise that addresses what we mean by living truthfully. What is it to live truthfully is deeply investigated in the notion of pinch and ouch through this repetition exercise. The primary function of which is to put the text on top and let the work of the actor connecting to another actor exist underneath that. So the reason for repetition and for the continued use of repetition so that, yes, people come back week in and week out, usually because Sam Smith, hi, Sam, finds us a space in, uh, in, uh, in Sydney, space being at a premium. And Sam has been our, our great guru for finding space in Sydney. What we do, what we work on, like the dancer at the bar or the pianist playing scales, is we work on what is it to live truthfully? How do we develop those muscles for, here's where, the, where it comes in, the observing muscles and the responding muscles. And when we develop those, then everything flows from that point. Yeah. The, the other four yeah. exercises extend that notion into the, into the second half of the definition, the given set of circumstances. Yeah, and that was another amazing thing that I was able to watch in my very early days was to, to be able to watch people who physically were able to be at one with their impulses and see the difference with people who weren't. Uh, and that was a fantastic thing to see and, and to, to watch that go on. Which leads me to my next question, Scott. I, after about 20 years of being in the business, so I graduated from an acting school and then spent 20 years working in the theatre and film and TV, and then I met you. And all of a sudden, this idea, prior to that, the idea of going to an acting class was not 
one of the first things that was on my on my agenda. Um, Scott, do you feel as if the the idea of going to an acting class, uh, especially for the people who have studied acting for three years, is again something that just sits in an American culture, or is or is that something that you think is a, a world-renowned idea of continually working on your muscles? I love that question, John. You're 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 throwing me up some great ones here. Um, Meisner used to say it takes 20 years to become an actor. Uh, that was his phrase, I, and that was his construct. The notion of 20 years always felt to me both too short and too long. Uh, I don't really like tagging it down to uh, you know a, a clock so that the actor looks at his watch one morning and says, okay, uh, I'm an actor now. That seems a bit silly. And, and I think what Meisner meant about that was that we are in a constant effort of training and development and pushing ourselves. Meisner had on his desk a small plaque that was a translation of a phrase from Goethe, from the uh, German playwright and philosopher. And, and the translation said, would that the stage were as high and as narrow as a tightrope so that only the trained would dare walk across it. That's what he believed, and I believe it too, that, that this level of training and, and going in deep is at the heart of Meisner's work. I, I will tell you this, the, there is a myth out there. I, as an American-born individual who's now done work all over the world, the myth out there is that the Americans are training mad and they are constantly in the studio or out of studio uh, working away on their, on their craft. That's no more true in America than I find it to be true in Australia, in, in Britain, in France, in Turkey, wherever I am, Hong Kong, people are, are always back in the studio and training because how do you define yourself as an actor? Surely it's not sitting in, at home waiting for your agent to ring. Surely it's getting out and doing work. Your work is sporadic. But when you can get into a room and connect with other people, you're working your home territory. And I find actors all over the world want to define themselves by the work they do, not by the roles they play or the, you know, the, the fame they achieve. I've always considered the acting a doing word. So yeah. do. Uh, and recently I've been reading William Ball's book and he's a very positive person. Do you feel that a lot of that has been your guiding light? Because the things I've heard about Meisner was that he was not such a positive person. Right, right. In my schizophrenic youth, I cut my teeth in theater with this guy named William Ball and the company he created in San Francisco called the American Conservatory Theater. And Bill was an astonishing force of nature, still one of the two or three greatest men of theater I've ever been in the room with, and, and a, a force for good in the sense that he, he promoted this idea of a word he invented called positation. We spend our working life in positation. We say yes to all ideas. So that was my, that was what I thought theater was. And then I went to New York when I was 19 and began to study with Meisner and found that in fact, there was a very different tone at Neighborhood Playhouse. Um, Meisner was not much in the, in the positive affirmation or in any way kind of upbeat. 
But I found what he taught, the material he taught, the information he had profoundly uh, important to me. So I worked with Meisner there at Neighborhood Playhouse. I then come, came back to San Francisco and realized, and started working with Bill again and realized that I was going to spend the rest of my career, as indeed I have, combining the approaches of William Ball with the techniques of Sanford Meisner. And that feels to me like a great marriage because Meisner said in so many words, I'm going to break you down and remake you into the actor I want you to be. And I remember thinking at the time that feels a little bit brutal. And now I think all these years later in a, in a Me Too era where uh, we're, we're talking about safe spaces, um, it's an entirely inappropriate way to teach. Um, remembering this, and John, you and I've been on a, on a recent conversation about teaching this work. It isn't what I teach nearly so much as it is what other people learn. That's the, that's the exchange. Yeah. Uh, and so the effort there is to get the information into the people uh, that I'm working with in a way that is, I think, uh, giving permission rather than um, waving a stick. Yeah. The, which leads me back to the whole idea of the technique. Um, or part of that's part of the technique that you talked about earlier, which was getting what you need from the other person. So if that is the case, being devil's advocate, does that mean I don't have to do anything? I just have to rely on the other person? Uh, it's not a devil's advocate. Theatre is now just starting to reopen here in London. And yesterday afternoon, much to my joy, I went to see ostensibly a one-person show. And, and John, you and I know each other well enough for you to know that one-person shows are not my favorite <laughs> um, for the obvious reason uh, that, you know, I don't go to the theater to hear a story told to me. I go to see something happen. Um, but this is that exception to the rule. I saw a production of Samuel Beckett's Happy Days, which for all intents and purposes is a one-person show. Um, and I was devastated by it. It was, I was bowled over and blown away by this exquisite actress who's now sort of the leading interpreter of Becca, the woman named Lisa Dwan, an Irish actress, directed by the great Trevor Nunn. Uh, and it was, it was astonishing to remember how powerful theater can be. Um, but in that case, Winnie, who's, who is, uh, as you may remember, buried up to her waist in sand, is, yeah is connecting to her husband, Willie, who's largely unseen, but also to us, talking about what a happy day she's having. Uh, remarkable play, remarkable play. Um, so it's about connecting out there always. As you said, John, it's not, it's not or as you alluded, it's not the whole picture, but it's 95% of the picture because <clears throat> There's nothing more compelling to see in the theater or in performance than somebody who's genuinely connected to and listening to another person. Um, you can see when an actor is looking inward. You can see when they're hauling up an emotion. And quite candidly, I'll, I'll confess my bias. Um, the last thing I wanted to do is watch somebody get emotional for its own sake. 
Uh, that just doesn't interest me. But somebody getting connected to their, you know, partner and the dilemma of what's what are they going to do with their child and whatever is happening right here and now, uh, that's that's gold and uh, that's where it all starts. But and here we get into another big topic, John, that you didn't even bring in. The concept of character ends up being, in this context, circumstance. In other words, we are modified, our behavior is modified by our circumstances. We behave differently in a lift than we do in a meadow. And, um, and that's how people begin to understand our character. We don't create it so much as we inhabit a given set of circumstances and the audience goes, oh, I get it. I see what that person's like, but we don't do that for them. So um, the given circumstances becomes an equal partner to living truthfully. And in the balance of those two things, our responses are modified. Um, uh, I know that you go into um, productions and work on productions that are up and running. So in that regard, what do you do there? And do you come across actors? What do you do when you come across actors who aren't Meisner actors? It's important to me as an, as a, an artist that I allow, uh, that I don't interfere with other artists' work in the sense that while, while our work is the most collaborative form, out there. It's much more collaborative than a painter and a brush. It's much more collaborative than a pianist and a, and a piano. It's, it's collaborative because there are two variables in play, us and the other person. And that, that alchemy that happens when we connect and nobody knows what's going to happen next, and, every, and then everything flows from that notion. It, if I go in and I work with with somebody who's already in a show, or if I'm working with somebody to, to prepare them for a film shoot or something like that, it's important to me to leave the person available for whatever the director, the other actors, the circumstances are. <clears throat> so um, it's that's why I, uh, I wanna be very respectful of other people's artistry and just offer concepts of connection and living and living in the moment that's a bit counterintuitive because actors i mean let's face it john acting is a terrifying event you i mean think of the courage it takes to you know this think of the courage it takes to leave the safety of the wings and take that long dangerous walk to the center of the stage and and the in in that arrangement the actor has a habit of trying to plan their future down to the last detail so at least they can confront the fear of being an actor. They know what they're gonna do next. Well, that fights everything I believe in that makes great performance. So what I try to do is hand the actors a different set of tools. And those tools are whatever you see, react to it, you know? You're in these circumstances, whatever you get, go with that. And, and so it, it might seem counterintuitive, but in the end, I think it's far more effective. Do you think the counterintuitiveness also of the learning lines gets in the way of things? Because 
some people learn lines and that's it. That's that's they've <laughs> learned it and that's the way it's done. And then you say, well, let's react to and every night that actor opposite you could be doing something completely different. Um, do you feel that this work? Uh, I, I certainly feel um, that this work lends to that. It lends to the idea that these are, happen to be words that are floating around in your head and they could come out differently every night or every take. John, the last, the last time I saw you on stage was that wonderful play at, um, at Melbourne Theatre Company. You remember a couple of years yeah. ago? Yeah, we did. Which Storm one Boy. was it? Stoneboy. Yes, yes. And, and what I loved about watching you work was how content you were to be still and present and, and responding to what you were given. Yes, you knew your lines. Yes, you knew what you were going what was, what was uh, the circumstances you were given. And by the way, that's the, that's the answer to the question you didn't ask. Lines are part of the given circumstances. Yeah. Uh, the memorization yeah. is part of that. But what made your performance uh, exquisite was was the presence you had in the moment. Y your lines were going to be sitting on top of whatever that connection you had was. And, um, and so I think that's the answer to it is that no matter what the issue, there's a place where we can put that information um, so that it's around you, surrounding you in the given circumstances, but leaving you free to live in the moment. Let me just add to that, John. The notion of working with other actors whose performance is encased in amber, um, I don't find that a problem. Maybe because of the eternal optimist in me, um, I live in hope that maybe maybe today they're going to discover something new. <laughs> and and yeah. uh, if you put your attention on somebody else and you and you know how they've said it ninety two times before. Maybe this is the one time it's going to come out differently, and then you'll respond anyway. Um, either way, you're still going to respond truthfully because you're going to be present in the moment. So you don't require another actor to be working in the same methodology for this thing to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll jump into the questions in a second, but I just wanted to ask one more. I had the opportunity to meet with um, Declan Donnellan uh, at a certain time, and I wanted to thank him so much about his book, The Actor and the Target. It was so wonderful. And his response was wonderful, but very self-deprecating. And he said, um, yeah, but it's just technique. So it's what you do when you don't know what you're doing. Uh, apart from that, you're doing what you know. Um, and so it was just one of those wonderful things where I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I tend to just, here's the script and I go for it. Do you feel that, your text analysis, do you think that that's something that the Meissner actor should do on every play, every TV thing, every commercial even? Or is it, again, something that you, you think, okay, this is, I just need to uh, address these questions um, because I'm not 100% sure of where I'm going. Uh, yeah, Declan's a miracle, isn't he? I love the permission he gave you to be in the room in, in that story, John. That's, that's amazing. And, and I think you could say that his book, The Actor and the Target, is effectively what we're talking about here. I don't think that, that you can put too much distance between Declan's work and, and the stuff I teach. In his, in his uh, construction, the target is the other person. You know, 
So the actor and the target, you know, there you are. That, that's, that's the same thing yeah. as what we believe. You, you went to uh, text analysis, and it, it seems to me philosophically that, that most text analysis, analyses of which I'm aware have the same thing in common. They are all predictive in nature. They predict your future as an actor. Um, they tell you the character journey in the case of a super objective, or they predict how you will feel at that moment in time uh, it, with actioning, for example. And there's a, you know, a myriad of ways you can, anybody could uh, analyze text. But the problem for me is that if you predict your future, um, then you are both locked into a, a truth that hasn't yet happened and you're the actor who who says the same thing 92 times in a row in the same way. So our way of analyzing text is um, is not to predict your future, uh, but it, it with a few simple questions to ask you to examine what are the givens, what are my given circumstances, and to put a feeling inside me as an actor. Once I do those two things, I remain available for whatever is out there, for whatever I could, could get from the other person and therefore connect it. So yes, if you're doing a, a commercial shoot, I would, I would have thought that the, well, perhaps less, <laughs> let me not get too exaggerated there. But, uh, but if, you, if you do the, the you know, a, a, a bit part on a, on a telly, why not do the text analysis? Why not understand your givens and then go live inside those with a feeling in, in you? I think you'll be miles ahead. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Hey, Scott, I think we should take this opportunity to, to let some questions in. Thank you so much for um, this lovely chat. It's always wonderful talking to you. Let's see if we can uh, answer some questions out there. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Hey, how are you, Catherine? Good, thanks. It's been a long time. We miss you here in Australia. Oh, you look fab. Ah, thanks. <laughs> Lockdown is treating us good, hopefully. Hope, hope you guys are going to good, too. <laughs> um, I've just got a quick question. Um, my, my Obviously, my love of Meister Technique, uh, you know it, and I've worked with you before. And the, the challenge I always run into is um, you mentioned that Meister is a, a technical technique. And the, the struggle that I run into sometimes as a working actor is, um, you know, lack of budget, deadlines, everyone's time is money, things have to happen quickly, there is no time to, um, to let a technique breathe, I just have to get a job done. And so I wonder if you could speak a bit how you imagine the Meister technique, which is a technical technique, coexisting in a world that um, I guess doesn't give an actor much space to... Yeah, to, to let a let a technique as um like Meister technique breed. How do we how do we coexist our technique and the practicality of our industry together? It sounds like you have personal experience to back you up, Catherine, on that. Uh, where you where you felt like, oh God, I, you know, I've got to, I'm getting all of this result driven stuff I've got to do, but I have a technique I'm trying to fold into it. Seems yeah, yeah. To me, yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, if I'm if I'm on a film set and I've got an actor opposite me who who doesn't use my technique, and I got a director who's just focused on cinematography, or I'm in a, a little indie theater production and 
It's just working toward, you know, as a tight budget, tight deadlines. And I want to be able to use my MISA technique and sort of enjoy that. How, yeah. How do I sort of marry the pragmatism of an industry with, with the beauty of a, of a technique as an actor? Um, the, the short answer, Catherine, it seems to me is this. It takes no time at all to be truthful. That's the one thing you've got going. And, and assuming you've kept your, your instrument sharp, right? As I said, unlike having a piano or a paintbrush, you are your instrument. So if you've kept your instrument sharp, meaning you're sprung loaded, you're ready, and you've got this technique for being in the moment, um, I think this is the best friend a director can have because you don't require the, the buildup or the warm up. Unlike many approaches, you're in. I mean, I watched this happen, and I'm sure you've seen this in any number of circumstances, Catherine, where somebody, in the time it takes from them to stand up from their chair and move into the performance space, switch on, uh, snap on, and then they're, they're in a state of aliveness. That's got to be the best, best thing you could ever bring to a film set with all the deadlines and pressures that are there. Is that an answer to your question? Yeah, Catherine? that is. Yeah, that is that is really good. I suppose that, yeah, as you mentioned, it, it's piano scales. And if you're playing your piano scales, then hopefully you'll be in a state of readiness. And yeah, that's that's great. Thank you. Great to see you, hon. Great to see you. Hi, how are you going? Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for this. This is very interesting. Good. I graduated acting school last year and we did a little bit of Meisner, thoroughly enjoyed it, was very, very helpful and successful. But I think we had a lot of time to spend on it um, and just working on one uh, scene and kind of going through the different activities and working with the same partner. Uh, so my question is, when you're in a situation like now in lockdown, when you have to use your boyfriend or um, roommate as a reader <laughs> and they're kind of just like this and not really giving you anything how can you use Meisner or something similar to your to your benefits basically great Rebecca thank you for that fab question um, out of curiosity what school did you go to that you did a smattering of Meisner I did. <laughs> that's my that's the title of my autobiography <laughs> Smattering of mice. Yeah, we'll read now. Um, <laughs> Actors Centre Australia. Oh, right. Okay. Um, lovely, lovely Dean. Um, uh, the, the idea of... Uh, your question is actually more complicated than it seems. Um, but the underlying principle here is there's always something to respond to. There's always something to work with. Mm -hmm. uh, if we go down to real basics, you can work with a mark on a wall. And, and I'm sorry for the um, foolishness that I'm about to say, because in the next moment, it may not be a mark on the wall, right? Okay. You, you, you can't predict any future. And when you, when you go into the reality that, it's, that we don't predict our future and we don't know what's gonna happen next, we automatically live in a different place. So yes, I think it's gonna be a mark on the wall in the next moment, but maybe it won't be. Now, that sounds foolish on the, on the surface of it, but um, if the actor is giving you so-called nothing, 
we need to swing that around and say, actually, the, the actor is giving me something. I may not like what they're giving me, but they are giving me something. Their presence in the room is something, even if it's your boyfriend staring at, his, at, at, his, uh, at the sport on his phone, or um, if it's uh, a reader in an audition who uh, is so bored they can't see straight and they're giving you flat out nothing. Mm -hmm. They're still giving you their presence and something in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what needs shifting there for Rebecca is that you shift away from um, judgment or opinion mm -hmm. and into response. Mm -hmm. And having a response is the flip side of having an opinion. Mm -hmm. Are you responding you have a response, to... Everything wakes up. Are you Go responding ahead. to their like, if you're responding to what they're doing, even if it's annoying you, you're kind of focusing on exactly what they're doing and instead, how do you correlate that with what they're saying from the text as well, if it's different? I love that question. Because that question, I think, is, is a central dilemma for the actor. Mm -hmm. um, most actors are taught to direct themselves. They're taught to think like directors, not think like actors. Mm -hmm. and, and when you think like director, you have a plan for how the scene ought to go. Mm -hmm. You have um, ex expectations of others around you and you live in a permanent state of ready to be enraged because they rarely go the way you, you have directed them in your head. Totally. So, yeah. So <laughs> I believe that actors should think about um, themselves as actors, as response machines, rather than as planning how the scene should go. And when you let go of result orientation and you work for process for a step-by-step -step, uh, response to whatever's going on, I think you're miles ahead. Okay. And just to add on to that, Rebecca, is the other thing about just to elongate on what um, Scott was saying is that we will be, if we're doing a self-test, we will be thinking as a director in that planning stage. But the moment the camera's rolling, that person's out the door. Mm -hmm. That person's gone. You have been the planner. You've done it. It's, it's planned. Now it's time for you to be the actor. Yeah. Now it's time for response. Yeah. And, and that's, that's something that you then wait, stop, have, have a look back at it. Don't be trying to figure out, is this going the way I want it to go through the scene because you're losing the game. Yeah. Wait, stop, rewatch it. Yeah. Now I'm back to my director, actor self. I can send this off. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Be the actor. Cool. Thank you. Rebecca, I love your, your setting. My nice. God, you're in paradise wherever you are. <laughs> Not a bad lockdown situation with all the plants. Uh, good for you. <laughs> Lovely to meet you, Rebecca. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. Thank you. Oh, hi, Scott. How are you? Hi. Uh, thanks so much for this. It's really great. It's been very informative, Pleasure. very helpful. 
Um, I was just wondering of the, the five exercises that you started mentioning earlier on, um, you mentioned repetition. Um, could you briefly um, summarize the other four? With pleasure, with pleasure. Sorry, are you RP, is that your name? Uh, my name's Richard. Yeah. Richard, okay, Yeah. great, hi Richard. Yes, with pleasure. So the first of the five is repetition, um, which has, has the function to develop the actor's ability to live moment by moment through an experience, any experience. <clears throat> um, that's what we mean by living truthfully. The second is an exercise we call independent activity. And the function of that activity uh, is to develop our ability to work under given circumstances. In this case, circumstances we give to ourselves. So we, we uh, address a very brief uh, set of parameters and then we go in and we do, like John just said a second ago brilliantly, you do the planning and then you go live inside the, the, the things you planned and then you're available for whatever happens. You don't, your plan doesn't include what will happen. It only includes the givens the given circumstances. The third exercise is something we call preparation. Richard, I'm assuming by asking this question, you may have had some Meisner experience before. Am I right about that? Not hugely, actually, no. Um, okay. Lots of other kind of, uh, approaches, but um, not a huge amount with, with Meisner. All right, okay, good. Um, or not good, I don't know. Uh, uh, but uh, the third exercise is preparation. And the function of preparation is, is, and this goes back to Rebecca's question, is to begin your work. Sorry, no, the, the question before Rebecca, uh, Catherine's work uh, question. It's to begin your work in a state of aliveness, right? To start working from a switched on, sprung loaded place, ready and available. So that's the, the purpose of the third exercise. And then we spend a good deal of time combining those three because we think when you put those three things together, independent activity, preparation, repetition, you're doing an exercise that develops all of the muscles you need as an actor, right? For living truthfully under a given set of circumstances in a state of aliveness. The fourth exercise takes those muscles and applies them to text. It's a bridge that brings into your work with text, the muscles for living truthfully. Uh, it's called breaking the back of the scene. And it's a way of approaching work that doesn't ask you to begin with how will you say these lines, but rather asks you to begin with what is my partner giving me? What's opposite me? Yeah. And then using the words on the, on the page for, uh, from that. And then the fifth and final thing that I teach is text analysis, which we alluded to earlier. That simple, straightforward way of uh, honoring the text by letting it speak to us and then including that in the, in the living in the moment business. So that's the five, Richard. Great, okay, thank you very much. It's interesting that you do the text analysis last instead of first <laughs> and that, that's... <laughs> That's great. Well, it speaks to what you were talking about before about not predicting what your actions are going to be and what your responses are going to be. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's great. Yeah, John, uh, John and I, as you, Richard, as you saw, John and I both had a big reaction to that. Um, <laughs> there's another. Uh, there's another uh, acting teacher 
uh, Larry Moss, a much admired, much loved acting teacher who, who occupies very similar territory to me, I believe, um, with one kind of huge difference. In Larry's book, he says, um, I'm gonna teach you acting from the beginning and the beginning is text analysis. So he, with all of his gifts and all of his experience and all of his brilliant practice, he starts at the polar opposite from me. <clears throat> yeah. But we have the same end and we go in the, you know, we want the same thing at the end of the day, we just have different ways of doing it. I don't know how I can get you alive and in the moment if I start you inside your head. Mm. Yeah, true. Yeah. Can be a big block. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Lovely to meet you, Richard. You too. Thanks. Thanks so much. Those are those are English sirens you're hearing. <laughs> uh, hello. Yes. G'day. Um, Hi, hello. Is it Amelia? Yeah, Amelia. It's lovely to meet you both. Thank you so much. This has been so amazing. Um, uh, my question is, um, I come more from a improv background and I was wondering what is the difference between reacting to the moment in terms of miser as opposed to improvisation and more free form kind of theaters. Um, obviously, usually there's no script in improv <laughs> or interactive, um, but uh, sometimes there is. And I was just wondering what you think is the difference there. Uh it's so great the world of improv in in Australia. Um, it's so. Are you are you in by any chance in Melbourne? Or are you in Sydney or I'm some Sydney. other place? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as you probably know, there's this hugely active improv scene in um, in Melbourne, right? Massive down there. Really, maybe best in the world at the moment. I would have thought. Used to be Chicago. Now it's now it's Australia. And I got a great friend uh, in the world of, of improv named Bronny, and Bronny is to die for. And he he is a he is a kind of he's the Frank Sinatra of improv. He just gets up there, snaps his fingers, and stuff happens. It's a it's amazing. And Bronny and I have a, this running conversation. He's done this work, and he have this we have this running conversation about the difference. And I think the difference is. When you improvise, you're functioning in a dual capacity as a writer and a performer, right? And when you act, you're only functioning in a single capacity, right? And that, um, that difference, I think, means that you, there's, a, there's a kind of high wire act when you improvise that makes it thrilling to be in the room with. And when you act, the thrill is the depth of truthfulness one achieves because you're not responsible for any form of creation. You're simply experiencing everything. Cool. Yeah. Wow, that's that, amazing. <laughs> the other thing about that is, and I'm not 100% because my impro world is is less than my acting world but something tells me that in that world of improvisation you're tending to do it for the audience and the acting side of it is not so the whole idea is that I'm in the space and you're in the space and we're reacting together and in the classes like the dropping classes 
even the rest of the class just disappears because mm. it's you and me. Uh, and it's not about how clever I can be or how I can match what you've done. It's honestly, truthfully responding what's happening in front of me. And my focus is on you. Mm. Uh, and that's a really different world. And not saying that one is better than the other, but I think that they, oh, they may be similar. They may be yeah. similar, but there's a real, um, there's a real difference there of 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 what one's trying to achieve mm, yeah no thank you because i i've definitely been an improvised like long form improv where it's much more truthful but i think it is also still you're still a writer um and you're still you're still very aware of the whole audience and what they might input into it um so thank you that clarifies it very well Nice to meet you, Amelia. Nice to meet you too. Bye. Bye. Hello. There we go. Um, so, John Scott, thank you very much for taking the time to to share with us your your, you know, your thoughts and your insight. Um, and I think it's amazing that actually in today's world where we've got things like COVID going on, that the technology does allow us actually all to connect like this. Um, the the question that I had was coming back to um, I think it was Catherine mentioned about how you deal with when um, you have people who haven't trained in Meisner, how you how you can be ready and available, and some of the challenges that go with that because um, I think we've probably all been there where we have someone who has just learned the lines and has done their um, script analysis and has worked out exactly how they're going to play it. And time after time after time, they just keep doing the same thing. Whereas one of the beauties of uh, Meisner is that because you are open and receptive to the other person, things can change all of the time in so many different ways. And it can generate lots of different emotions and lots of different outcomes, but all of them are totally true and honest. Um, and my thoughts on that are that I remember, cause I, I trained with Mike Sassente in New Zealand with my Meisner. And one of the things that he taught me very clearly was actors should never direct. So all that we can do is try to be honest to ourselves and respond to the moment um, and deliver our part, but then let the director step in and, um, and give critique. And if necessary, or if possible at that point, then you can possibly look for the opportunity to maybe ask for some time to maybe workshop something with the, um, you know, with the other actor. But that's that's all I've been able to, that's the only solution I've found to working around that. What are your thoughts as to how you deal with a, a struggling actor who maybe doesn't have that insight and doesn't realize to totally free themselves up and be open to the situation? John, that sounds like a question for you with all of your experience in working with actors. Oh, I bloody love it. Um, thanks, Scott. Uh, and thank you so much, David, for that question. It's fantastic. Um, so I'm coming to you live from my trailer of a TV show that I'm shooting at the moment, um, and I'm about to go back on set any second. What I don't do when I walk on set is ask if anyone's doing mice now. Um, what I don't have the foggiest idea of is if what anybody's acting choices are. 
that's not my deal. That's not my caper. My caper is my Meissner work. And what I've done through this text that I've been given is been able to go through uh, all of the ideas of answering the questions uh, that help, as Scott's alluded to with the text analysis. And what I do is I walk through that door as a living, breathing soul, ready to respond to whatever's happening in front of me. Mm. Now, the beautiful thing about working on the camera is this is what it can see as opposed to the stage where the director can be at the other end of the room. So it's coming in here and it sees everything I do. And more often than not, and this is something that I've picked up off Scott's work of trusting myself to be the actor, um, is that I'm responding truthfully to what's happening in front of me. If somebody on the outside thinks that there's repetition in this that we that's stale or it needs to happen, they will talk to whoever they feel necessary in order to do that. Not my job, not my party, my party's to respond truthfully in that given set of circumstances, which I do. Um, don't question other actors. I never ask an actor um, to change something for my benefit or anything like that. It's literally because I don't know that what I'm getting is going to be either good or bad. It just is. And I'm going to respond to it. And that's the exciting part of my life. I don't want to forward think that this is the way the scene should go or anything like that. The scene that we shot a few days ago, we ended up talking over the top of one another and we were like, oh, does that make sense? And the director went, mm, bloody love it. It sounds right. It's like that sounds better than what was going to be there. And that just happened because... Um, someone didn't like the pause the other one was giving, so they just came in with their line. Uh, and so that just happened by mistake, but it ended up being something that we could end up playing with, the scene. So uh, I honestly go into my work. The judgment cap gets flicked out the door. I have no intention of finding out what people are doing. Um, all I want to do is respond honestly and truthfully to what people give me. And then the director will choose what they like. The editor will choose what they like. The producer will choose what they like. <laughs> my choices are well and truly done. So that's my thoughts on that, David. I hope that helps. So thank you. So, um, so worry less about how the other person's performing. And again, just focus on your own ability to be open and receptive and then just be truthful in the moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, David, I, I have a lot. Oh, just to finish up with David, I have a philosophy that your job on, on the set, I love, I'm very excited, John, that you're going to about to dash off and, and hit the lights. You know, it, it's fantastic. Um, but my philosophy is that when they take the, when they go into the edit, they've got a, a lot of choices. They have a lot of coverage and your job as an actor is to make them cut to you, to make them say, oh, see his reaction there oh, let's i know he's not talking but look at his face and make them cut to you right great thank you thank you very nice much to meet you, to think about thank you oh now it's alex here i just want to throw back to john and scott any final comments before we do a final thank you and thank you so much to scott and john what a wonderful session um, thanks, Alex. I just want to say before I go, thank you, Scott, for a, a wonderful uh, chat. As per always, um, I hope 
uh, that everybody enjoyed it. It's certainly the learning from you and using this technique makes life so bloody wonderful. So thanks heaps. Johnny boy, you're younger than the day, than the day I met you nine years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. Uh -huh. Go go, be brilliant. Okay, John. Well, thank you thanks, again, man. John, who had to race in and out from um, from the set today. So we really appreciate it. And of course, Scott coming from London. First, that probably hasn't even had his coffee yet. So thank you so much. And of course, to all the participants. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, John. Thank, thank you, you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, guys. Catch you. Thank you. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.